I'm just suddenly having a state of goofiness, <laughs> waiting for it to pass. <laughs> has nothing to do with the talk, which isn't that funny. <laughs> What I want to talk about tonight is the second stage of the Eightfold Path. Um, the first stage being right view, <clears throat> a right understanding. And what's interesting about that, that is right view, is that it's both the first stage of the path and also the culmination of the path. So right view in the beginning stages is somewhat of an intellectual understanding of the Four Noble Truths, some seeing that impels us into being willing to practice. And the culmination of the path, liberation, is the direct, intuitive seeing into, understanding, experiencing of the Four Noble Truths. So in that way, right view is both the beginning and the end. The second stage of the path has various translations known as right attitude, right thought, right intention. Sometimes I've seen it translated as right aspiration. It's uh, an interesting one to me because it has so many different levels of application. From looking at what does right intention, right attitude mean in one single noting moment, just in the arising of one moment of noting, all the way to its broad applications in our everyday life. I find it, especially in relating to our our broader life, a very powerful aid, a message in how we relate to our experience, a message that meditation and our life aren't separate, that it's the same, the way the mind relates in one noting moment and the way it relates in some confusing situation in our life. It's the same, the same inclinations, the same mind. And so working with right attitude on these different levels I find very helpful. So what does it mean, right attitude, right intention, in one noting moment? One of the things that I've liked a lot that Upandita often speaks of is how in one noting moment the whole eightfold path is actively present. For some reason I I find this quite a fascinating way of looking at it. And it's present in that the the three parts of the path that have to do with um, action right speech, right action, right livelihood, are assumed by our yogi status. In other words, that we're observing right speech. Basically, if you're not speaking at all, you definitely are. Right action is also assumed, that we are observing the precepts. And right livelihood, he also says that in the moment, devoting your energy and attention to meditation, to understanding, is considered right livelihood. It's talking about what you're doing right now. So that's the three 
moral actions, moral part of the Eightfold Path. And then in a moment when you're actually able to connect with the object and note, the factors of right effort, of course, are present, the effort to move the attention to the object, right mindfulness, the observing power, the ability to connect with the object, to focus on it, to see it as rising, if it's arising. And, of course, right concentration, that there's enough focus of mind to see clearly what's happening. That's all in that moment. And then we come to right attitude, right intention, and that's considered, in this very narrow sense, to be right aim. That it's that precise aiming, not to slip from the object, the willingness to aim very precisely and directly at whatever is arising in a moment. That's considered right aim, right thought. And of course, this leads to right understanding, which is knowing what's arising in the moment for what it is, very simply. So knowing the rising as pressure, as tension, It's just that bare experience that's right understanding. So in one noting, right attitude can be seen as right aim. And what this implies is actually quite broad because it implies no hesitation, no preferences, a sense of constancy, a sense of willingness to aim and connect immediately and directly with whatever is happening to give everything that arises full energy, not picking and choosing, not kind of paying full attention to some and kind of half-heartedly aiming at others, not letting the inclinations of the mind rule what's happening, but a constant, ongoing, unpreferential sense of aim. And expanding that to our life, what it implies to me is that same willingness to greet every situation in our life, whatever is arising, as our practice. That each situation can be met with this full openness of mind and used as an opportunity to learn and to grow. And in a broader sense, this is what I mean when I talk about right attitude. We're having a lot of chance to learn that here. Learning that happiness is not dependent on having the perfect situation. I can think of many times that I've been staying somewhere, living somewhere that should have been idyllic that by all external ways of looking at it, I should have been ecstatically happy. And I was miserable because it's all in the attitude of mind. And times that we've all had them here, where you've been in a very difficult situation, even if it seemed like a little thing from outside, but internally the situation was quite difficult. And at some point, the attitude shifts and you're able to use it as a teacher. Whether it's someone sitting next to you that's driving you crazy 
or certain noises late at night in the bathroom or the library, the wrong kind of food, indigestion every day after lunch. Little things looked at from the outside, but internally, it's really quite difficult. It's a painful situation. And so many times people have said to me, and I know I've experienced the same thing myself, that there's a time when you actually become thankful for that situation because of the learning and the sense of freedom from attachment to the pleasant that comes out of looking at it. So that's one manifestation of right attitude. It's also a process, right attitude, through which we gradually become more and more clear about what our real values are in life, what our life's about, moving more clearly from that understanding rather than drifting from reaction to reaction without any sense of what's really important to us. And as this develops through meeting these situations with a willingness to learn and grow, that sense of clarity, that commitment to really being in our life, to using it, that understanding, it it starts to shine through in your being. It starts to shine through just in the way that you relate to life, that you relate to little situations. It doesn't matter whether it's a subtle experience happening in your sitting that no one else even knows about, or if it's a really frantic experience at work, or if it's an unexpected and painful interaction with another yogi. They're no different. You know, it's the same mind. And we have the possibility of using any situation that arises as manure to learn, to grow. Or conversely, we, there's always the possibility that we'll drown in our reactions. Without working with our attitude, with our intentions in this way, it's true that difficult situations easily drag us down. The reactions of greed and hatred and delusion in the mind are so strong that they just take over. We identify with them, with anger at the person who wrote us a nasty note, with anger at ourselves for being angry, with angry at ourselves because we wrote a nasty note. It just goes on and on. We spend all our energy then in resistance or in denial or in trying to rework the memory so it comes out better and it's not so uncomfortable to think about. When our attitude switches, when we're working with right attitude, we use the energy to meet the situation constructively. It's that same energy of right aim. We meet both the situation and our reaction to it just as they are, without hesitation, without resistance, without trying to make it different. It's an attitude of interested investigation of no matter what's happening. And from this is where we begin to see where the hooks are, why the particular situation is bringing up so much suffering, why it's so difficult. And that's when we really start to break free to learn
right attitude is also translated as right intention. I want to say a little bit about that. Intention being that subtle, that aim of the mind, kind of the inclination of the mind, the intention of the mind. It's seen as the link between understanding, between the degree of understanding, and then the next part of the path, which is action. That the understanding can only manifest in action through the intentions of mind that make the action happen. So it's a crucial link because thought or intention is the necessary forerunner of action. Now as understanding deepens, it informs the intention, it forms the intention, and this leads to clearer, more wholesome actions, actions that aren't causing pain and suffering to ourselves or to others. Now in the mind without understanding of the four truths, the intentions that arise, and intentions often arise as thought, are basically manifestations of, guess what? The three roots of suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion. So it'll manifest as painful thoughts, angry thoughts, greedy thoughts, thoughts of wanting, and will obviously lead to confused and painful actions, leading to a lot of suffering in ourselves and in the world around us. So as understanding, first as the understanding deepens, this will naturally be reflected in a change in the intentions of mind, in a change in the thoughts. So that is, there's more understanding, say, of the nature of suffering, giving rise to compassion. It will naturally happen that the thoughts in the mind, the intentions, will be more reflective of this, that thoughts of harming won't come up so much. When they do come up, they'll be counteracted more quickly by a sense of the pain that that would bring. But the Buddha also recognized, this is one of his pragmatic things again, that while only understanding will uproot completely these three roots of suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion, and their manifestation as thought, that we can also work with them on the level of their manifestation in thought, that we can work with greed and hatred especially on the level of intention, how it manifests in our experience as thought. So, for example, the roots of greed and hatred, they surface in our experience as thought, as intention, leading to action of some kind. Thoughts of anger, thoughts of harming, thoughts of wanting. So at the same time that we're meeting that experience with mindfulness, a clear seeing that allows for wisdom that can uproot these altogether, we can also kind of tackle the thoughts on another level. And that's working with the intention itself. And how he suggests to do that 
is a redirecting of the intention. Not with aversion, but it's cultivating actually the wholesome counterpart to these unwholesome intentions of mind. So to do this, of course, he has quite a specific way to do that. <clears throat> and he talks about threefold right intention, which we can work at cultivating. The first of these is to cultivate intentions of renunciation. Now, renunciation springs from the wholesome root of non-greed. And this works on the principle that when thoughts of renunciation are aroused in the mind, they basically replace, dislodge thoughts of desire, intentions of greed. So what's happening is in that moment, non-greed, the wholesome root, is replacing greed, the unwholesome root. It's kind of like thought substitution. And that often we actually have the choice that we can do this. It's very practical because it's on the premise that contrary thoughts, contrary roots can exist in the mind at the same time. And it's also based on the premise that whatever one reflects upon very frequently, whatever you think about frequently, that tends to become the inclination of mind. So it's giving some attention to what the mind is dwelling on. And when we have the choice to make the choice towards a wholesome intention rather than an unwholesome one, unwholesome meaning just that it leads us to more suffering. So working with developing the intention of renunciation serves to strengthen the to, to strengthen that non-greed and to weaken the intentions of greed. The other two parts of right intention are cultivating intentions of goodwill or metta and cultivating intentions of harmlessness, compassion. And both of those work as an antidote to aversion, the root factor of aversion. And delusion is really seen through more by understanding. So I want to talk a little about each of these three right intentions and just some practical ways that we can work at cultivating them. Intentions of renunciation. Now this doesn't mean enforced asceticism, you know, that everyone needs to give everything up and become a monk or a nun. It also includes positively the sense of inner contentment that arises when we're not wanting so much, when we're not needing so much, when we're less caught up in acquiring. It's a great sense of ease and happiness can come with this kind of simplicity. I noticed this um, when I was in India last year, this year, when I was in India this year, that after uh, I'd been there a while, I realized I was really happy. And on the surface, it would things were nice, but everything's a real hassle there. And you can't do very much in a day. And you can go to the post office, and you can go sit, and you can go to the chai shop a couple of times, and it takes up the whole day. And taking a bath 
takes quite a lot of time. And I realized actually that it was, at first it's a kind of enforced simplicity. Didn't really have a choice. It wasn't like I had gone with a sense of renunciation. But the simplicity, the renunciation that was happening of itself led to a great sense of contentment, of appreciation of what was happening. And there being not so many things to want, the mind just kind of wasn't wanting very much. Of course, also what it did want were things it could get, and so I wasn't looking at wanting in some ways. But that sense of simplicity just reminded me of what renunciation can really bring about in the mind. It's a lovely sense of appreciation and inner contentment. Our culture in general, at least the way I experience our culture, is that it's not real supportive of renunciation. It's not really the driving value, shall we say. Um, And I guess this is no different, no different from when the Buddha was alive because he describes his teaching as running contrary to the way of the world and that the way of the world is desire. I find, I find my experience of our culture is that it's organized to enhance desire just anywhere I look. For example, the first thing that came to mind was looking at the Sunday New York Times magazine and about the first 20 pages is just these full-color ads for all kinds of expensive clothes and expensive perfume and expensive coats and people in all these seductive poses to advertise socks, say. <laughs> and by the end of looking at it, either I'm really disgusted if I'm, one of my, if I'm in a moralistic mood or else I'm thinking that I look like a slob and I have to go into New York and really fix up my wardrobe. And either way, it's cultivating aversion or it's cultivating greed. And... It's just how our desires run, how our culture is run. I had a friend who I met actually when I was a nun. He was uh, a layman at the temple I was at in Thailand from Australia. And his job, he's a great artist, and his job before he left had been being in charge of um, Revlon's advertising for all of Southeast Asia. And he was just describing to me very specifically the the psychological tricks that they use in an ad to draw people in and make them want what's being advertised. It's very calculated. I had no idea the setting, the colors, certain colors will make people want things, certain colors will turn them off, the angles, how big something is. very interesting. I, I just I didn't realize actually how conscious the advertising industry is about how to activate wanting in our minds. And it works. So in our culture, we tend to think of renunciation as having to give stuff up, you know, and it's hard and it's suffering. This is a quotation from Lama Yeshe, a Tibetan Lama who died several years ago. Most of us do not know what renunciation means. We're disturbed when we hear about giving up attachment to sensual pleasures, which we take to mean having to suffer in order to achieve inner liberation. But renunciation does not mean that we must give up happiness 
or that it is desirable to suffer. On the contrary, our aim is to achieve a state beyond suffering. The aim of most of our daily lives is to try to satisfy each physical desire as it arises, day after day, month after month, year after year. We try to achieve happiness by perpetuating something that is essentially transitory. This expectation, stemming from a misconception, can never be fulfilled and is therefore totally irrational. So renunciation isn't about giving up things so we'll suffer. It's actually a turning away from the craving. Renunciation is a turning away from this desire for gratification. And it's very powerful. It's true that it can be tremendously aided by an outer simplification in our life. This retreat format, for instance, is a great form of renunciation. You've had to renounce a great deal of outer gratification and sense pleasure in order to come and stay here for three months. And you've done it voluntarily, so that's a true renunciation, not one that's forced. And you voluntarily choose to stay here, and you can see the power that comes from simplifying your life in that way. I learned a lot about that also when I was a nun in Thailand. It was voluntary, but the first couple of months were really hell. You know, adapting to the culture, adapting to what it meant to live in robes, to all the things that one can't have or be involved with or talk about or do. And at first there's a lot of wanting. But after a while, when you see that There's no way to get what one wants. And so the energy turns around into looking at the wanting and seeing how much suffering comes from that. And it's much easier then to turn away from the craving, from the wanting altogether, rather than spending one's time running around trying to achieve it. And it amazed me, but by the end of the time I was there, although the situation was similar, it's it stays in my mind as one of the happiest, most contented and vital times of my life. That the simplicity just gives such a space for appreciation in the mind and for looking at what's happening and understanding. Much happier than times when I have a lot, but I'm caught in a space of need. No matter how much I have, then I need something else. And it's, it's stultifying. So I'm not talking about that we're looking to achieve or expecting to achieve, shall I say, immediately, a state where we're desireless and to look at renunciation as expecting that we need to be desireless. It's not that at all. But it's much more having a commitment to the attitude with which we greet this mind of wanting, this mind of greed. A commitment to watch and see how desire affects our actions, how it affects our attitude to the world. 
to use the situation to learn from. So this watching the nature of desire and how in our own life dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, is inherent in desire, can't really be separated from it. This seeing of this, this watching it, is one of the things that helps our mind incline toward renunciation in a natural way. It's one of the ways to work with developing this part of right intention. So just watching it. Notice how when your mind is in a desire, how it affects our attitude to the world. You know how when you're hungry and you're walking down the street and all of a sudden all you see are the restaurants, whereas before you never noticed that at all. Or times here when I've been on a retreat and I'm in a space that's really painful and my mind is just kind of grasping onto the painful aspect of things and I can walk into... Remember this one moment really clearly I walked into the room I was sitting in and I loved the room and I had a little plant hanging from the window but I was in this space of negative, negative. All I was seeing was the pain. And I walked in. The first hit was, oh, this is a really nice room. Right after that, ah, it's just going to be gone in another month. Oh, that plant's really pretty. Ah, it's just going to die. And really seeing things from that attitude the way that wanting shapes our experience. Working with renunciation, it helps us sort through the maze of things that we desire. It helps us know what's really important in our lives. And it lends us the strength not to be so sidetracked into running after this and that. That's why I think sometimes making a clear sense of renunciation to oneself can be helpful because then we don't have to spend a lot of time in waffling, thinking, well, should I have this? Shouldn't I have this? And it's not that there's any one particular thing to renounce that's better than another, but I find it a very helpful and interesting practice. For example, eight precepts. And I'm not saying that, that everyone should go on eight precepts. It's just an example. The times I've been on it, as a real vow, say the times I was a nun, there was clear, there was no way that I was going to eat anything after noon. There was no discussion, there was no waffling. And it left so much more energy to go into the seeing, to see what not eating did, to see how much energy I actually had for other things when I wasn't trying to decide, should I eat, shouldn't I eat? Now there's been times that I was on retreat here And I couldn't decide, should I do eight precepts? Shouldn't I do eight precepts? And so every day at tea time, every day, (laughs) would go through this whole thing. And whether I ate or whether I didn't eat, there was a lot of energy being expended in working with this desire. Having made the renunciation made a lot of space for looking at things in a clearer way. And this could go on with anything. And it could be a renunciation for three days. But just to experiment with the space and the clarity that that can bring into the mind. Another thing that I found helpful in working with renunciation is I'm not as liable to stay immersed in habit. 
Habit is a very strong thing. And often we'll stay in habit because it's comfortable, it's easier, because we're just kind of dull. The mind inclines in the same way. We just do the same thing every time because we're not paying much attention. The force of habit is strong. I want to read this little cartoon I found quite fortuitously. It's a quiz. What's your philosophical outlook? It's kind of like a right attitude quiz. The first little box says, you wander down a crowded city street. Jostled in the bustle, solitary yet surrounded, you think, these people are A, my brothers, my sisters, B, perverts, (laughs) probably pickaxe murderers, C, I sure could go for a chili dog. (laughs) And the second, amid the crowd, a stranger slowly turns. As his eyes meet yours, you muse, A, I know what he feels. He feels hope. He feels fear. B, why is that pervert looking at me? (laughs) C, maybe a pepperoni pizza with olives. (laughs) And then it goes on, and the last is, Further down, construction workers are tearing the street to rubble. How symbolic, you marvel. It reminds me of A, the path of life. B, the highway to hell. (laughs) C, Rocky Road, my favorite flavor. (laughs) So that's what I mean by habit. You know, the inclinations of our mind are really strong. And they'll surface whenever we're not paying attention. Working with renunciation gives us more of a chance to see these inclinations when they arise. Because, for example, take the food one. If you're not eating, they can't be satisfied. And there's nothing to think about whether to satisfy them. So you can see the inclinations arising. We're more aware of that moment of choice that really interesting moment when you see, say, an inclination to greed arising, and you know you have the choice whether to act on it or not. And it's interesting because so much of the time we act on it anyway, even when we know from previous experience that it's going to bring suffering, either that we eat too much or we didn't eat too much but we're going to berate ourselves for the rest of the day for giving into greed or whatever. Either way, though, That moment of choice comes over and over, and either way we move with it. When we're working with renunciation and can see it clearly, that's where we have a chance to learn. That's where we have a chance to work with this right attitude. It's not so much about expectations of perfection as about willingness to look and learn. True renunciation, it's not, it's not from an outer force. Renunciation isn't repression. You know, it's not driving away desire from the mind by filling the mind with aversion and loathing for the desire. I mean, you're just substituting aversion for desire. It's not helpful. It's much more about changing our perspective so that the things we inwardly cling to now, when we change our perspective, they no longer bind us. 
We're no longer suffering from that. As Suzuki Roshi says, renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. And that's very profound, because when we really accept that something's going away, that clinging that binds us isn't there. And there's true renunciation in that moment. Inclining the mind towards renunciation is also helped, as I said, from seeing the pain inherent in desire and from a willingness to keep ourselves open to seeing that, to looking, to seeing that the world around us is full of inspiration, to see the Four Noble Truths, to see the truth of suffering and of clinging and of the freedom from that. We can really, when our minds are open, when we're willing to look in this way, you can see it everywhere. And I know you've all had moments like this where you walk outside and can just see so much in the season changing, you know, from fall to winter. Or, like I know, taking a walk and just seeing a dead snake crushed in the road. Or hearing children crying. Or a really painful memory, a beautiful sunset. It doesn't matter what. It can be the most mundane things. And holding ourselves open to see the the depths of the Four Noble Truths in these is a great inspiration to working with right attitude, to being willing. It gives us a sense of urgency. It renews our sense of commitment to investigation, to really use what comes in our way as our practice. It's said when we work with renunciation in this way, it's so powerful in that it purifies our conduct. Obviously, as I said, that renunciation, that clarity of intention leads to more pure conduct. It aids in concentration and it also nourishes wisdom. So it's very powerful. One line I just read, I hadn't thought of it this way before, but it was saying that in one way we could look at the whole course of practice as a process of renunciation. Beginning from the first time we sit down and begin practicing and culminating in Nibbana being the ultimate renunciation, relinquishment of everything. So the second area, the second right intention is intentions of freedom from ill will, intentions of good-heartedness. It's metta, It's also cultivating a sense of openness to whatever situation prevents itself in our lives. That attitude of being willing to learn from situations, both internal and external, rather than meeting them with resentment, ill will, self-pity, the whole chain of possibilities. 
from Thich Nhat Hanh. I have to deal with my anger with care, with love, with tenderness, with nonviolence. We do not need to consider anger and hatred as enemies we have to fight or destroy to annihilate. Dealing with anger in that way would be like transforming yourself into a battlefield, tearing yourself into parts. If you struggle in that way, you do violence to yourself. If you cannot be compassionate to yourself, you will not be able to be compassionate towards others. So that sense of self-acceptance, it's really a sense of metta to whatever is happening in the moment. That's this aspect of right attitude. And we develop it even in one moment with that quality of right aim, a quality of not hesitating, of not preferring, of constant moving to and opening to whatever arises in a moment. That's cultivating this right intention, intention of goodwill, quality of metta towards whatever arises. When we're working with cultivating this intention of goodwill, that's when difficult situations are no longer in the way, you know, intruding on our practice, but they actually become stepping stones, opportunities for growth in the practice. Namkai Norbu, a Tibetan Lama, says that whatever arises as one's karmic vision is used as the path. And again, this is powerful. Whatever arises, no exceptions. That means anything that happens, that comes up in our experience, can be used to foster understanding, to foster wisdom. And this brings about a great change in our attitude to things that come up. It's really powerful. I mean, we've all had experiences of that where we can use a situation where we've been really closed, really resistant to something that's going on on a continual basis. The person in the room next to us keeps slamming the door. And the resistance is palpable. And what are we learning but aversion and closeness? And when we can actually open to the situation as it is, a great sense of learning and growth can come from that. This is an example that I like very much. Uh, I cut it out of the newspaper last year. It's uh, about a woman who said Marie Balter was 17 and clinically depressed when she was misdiagnosed as schizophrenic and placed in a state mental hospital. She remained inside for another 17 years. So this article is about how now, fittingly for a woman whose antidotes to adversity are perseverance and forgiveness, Balter has returned as a full-time administrator in the same hospital. I wouldn't have grown one bit if I didn't learn to forgive, she said in a recent interview. 
If you don't forgive your parents or your children or yourself, you don't get beyond that anger. Forgiving is a way of reaching out from a bad past and heading to a more positive future. This is real powerful to me. Someone who has suffered immensely in her life, 17 years, and it was very painful 17 years, and coming out and getting herself back together, going back to school, getting a graduate degree. She got married. Her husband died. She's had a 10-year bout with cancer. I mean, the list of what this woman is going through is amazing. And her strength is in her willingness to use the situations to grow and to learn forgiveness. It's very, very powerful. To me, this is what this part of good-heartedness, of non-ill will, is all about. One can spend one's time lost in recriminations, in self-pity, and we'll all get caught there sometimes. But it's the willingness to make the intention not to stay there forever, to remember that we can wake up and use the situation to grow. It's the Don Juan's difference between a warrior and an ordinary person, that a warrior sees everything as a challenge, and an ordinary person sees everything as a blessing or as a curse. And it, that's, it's really a strong way to look at life. Just recently, a few months ago, I was in a situation that ostensibly was fine, but somehow it was pushing a lot of my buttons, and I was going through emotional difficulty and just basically unhappy. And I found myself thinking about how I could reorganize things and what I should change because the situation wasn't working and generally getting tighter and tighter. And one day it just hit me. Do I just want to organize my life to be comfortable or do I want to be free? And when that question came up, there wasn't really any uh, confusion as to what the answer was. And I realized if I wanted to be free, then this situation was just the way to learn about that. And arranging my life so I didn't have to face it was only going to lead to more needing of comfort and more fear of a similar situation. It helped me a lot. I do also want to mention that in clear seeing, it also, without aversion, enables us to see that there are situations that are harmful, that are bad for us, you know, that are physically, emotionally, mentally harmful, and that through wise attention and clear seeing, we know, yeah, I need to get out of this situation. That's not necessarily done with fear and aversion. That it can also be done out of intentions of non-harming and caring. So non-harming also means taking care of oneself, but from clarity, not from fear. And that leads into the third right intention, which is, is intentions of non-harming, intentions of compassion, as opposed to the second, which is intentions of metta. Partly the way that our intention of non-harming can be developed is through 
again, it always comes back to this, our own experience of suffering. It's actually another reason that helps me to incline my mind towards openness when I'm in a difficult or suffering situation. The Dalai Lama, when I was out there, said that for the development of compassion, and he's like Mr. Compassion, if anybody is, he said it's necessary for deep seeing into the pervasive suffering nature of existence and feeling the unbearableness of it. Now, this surprised me a lot because he wasn't kidding. He said, otherwise, compassion is somewhat hypocritical. And so we can begin by contemplating how all beings wish to be free from suffering, and yet they still suffer. And this is a very powerful contemplation. And it deepens through our own experience of suffering and how unbearable that can be sometimes. And this gives rise to intentions of non-harming, to intentions of compassion. It also, the Dalai Lama said, what aids this is a sense of the ability to exchange oneself for others. See, that is a, how to generate that, that sense of interrelatedness, that sense of someone else being as important or more important than I am. One way we can work with that is just beginning to pay attention to how the different ways that we can relate to a difficult situation that arises here, now. That there's a way we can relate to a situation that actually increases a sense of separation, a sense of me and you, and not much feelings of compassion. And there's also a way we can relate that evokes the sense of oneness, the sense of being able to replace ourselves with others, to exchange ourselves with others. So take a simple example. Say you have a Vipassana vendetta here, someone that's driving you up the wall, and now all you have to do is, you don't even have to see him, you just have to think about him, and you're angry or resentful. And if you're near that person and they're actually doing something, making some sound, (laughs) it's like I can't believe right now how sounds are becoming so painful to people. So someone's making a sound. And there's different ways we can relate. And the one is a sense that really brings on a separation of that sound should go away, that person should go away, I shouldn't have to be experiencing this and all the self-righteousness or all the self-blame for feeling so angry. But it's basically about wanting to make the unpleasant thing go away. And the sense of me and other gets really strong. And the sense of separation is really strong. And we've all here had times when that suddenly changed around. You know, when we stop resisting the situation, whatever the situation is, when we've just had to give up. And sometimes 
you really can feel a sense of exchanging for the other person. You suddenly really feel their pain. You have a sense of where that action is coming from. And in that, there's, there's not a sense of two separate beings of that person causing me to feel like this, but just a sense of their pain and the pain over here and how it's a mutual situation working together. It's not so personal. And often people will say how this leads into a sense of communion with the suffering of the world. The personal suffering is a key into knowing that we're all sharing in the universal suffering. And so sometimes these seemingly silly little incidents can open up our heart and understanding so that we do key into the suffering of the world. It's the same suffering, whatever the object. And so those times we can drop the resistance and feel that sense of oneness. It's a real gateway to compassion which allows these intentions of non-harming to become stronger. I just want to read this one thing from Thich Nhat Hanh about that. I love the way he says things. It's so simple, down to earth. He's talking about the wildlife shows on TV where you'll often see like tigers chasing things and snakes eating things and He says, we long for the well-being of the frog and the antelope, but rarely do we consider that the tiger and the snake must also eat in order to live. We humans eat chickens, pigs, shrimp, fish, and cows. Yet because it is painful to watch, we will take the side of the prey and hope it will escape. In these situations as meditators, we must remain very clear. We cannot take either side because we exist in both. Some people can remain unmoved or even enjoy the sight of a tiger tearing apart its prey, but most of us feeling its agony take the side of the victim. If a scene like this were occurring in front of us, we would try to find a way to save the antelope and the frog. But we have to be careful not to do this just to avoid our own anguish. We must also feel the pain of the tiger or snake deprived of food and have compassion for them. All beings have to struggle to survive. The more deeply we penetrate into life, the more we see its miracles and the more we see its heartbreaking and terrifying events. You know, so we're all developing. We all have the potential for cruelty and the potential for great metta and great compassion. And true gentleness non-harming, compassion. Now, they need to manifest even in the most difficult, challenging situations. And so for that reason, I feel like we need these difficult situations because it's through them we see where we're still getting stuck. You know, what is more of a challenge than we're able to meet now? 
And that's okay. You know, we have compassion for ourselves and our suffering. But we also can't fool ourselves that we're living in great compassion. There are times that we are, and there's times that it's just too much for us. And so these difficult situations are a gift to us because we learn where we still need to grow. And we also learn to have compassion for ourselves. So working with developing these right intentions, right attitude, intentions of renunciation, of goodwill, of harmlessness, like everything else, it's a practice. It's not going to happen overnight. The habits of greed, hatred, and delusion are not too easily dislodged. But, as the Buddha said, what we think about frequently, that's what the mind inclines towards. And you'll start to notice, I'm sure you've noticed already at times, if you can really stand back objectively and be honest in this retreat, that the more often we do make the choice to work with right intentions, they do more and more become inclinations of mind. And you will find there'll be a time when you're in a painful or angry situation and suddenly the inclination towards harmlessness, towards goodwill, will just arise seemingly of itself. You weren't sitting there trying to make it happen. It really does happen. Or the inclination to renunciation will just arise spontaneously. And so you'll see that the mind is beginning to purify, to incline more towards these wholesome roots. So let's sit for a little bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.